Hey there, Toho Yara listeners. Alex here. I mentioned it at the end, but I wanted to apologize for the lateness of this particular episode. Turns out May and June were busy months for all of the Toho guys, and I didn't get around to editing this until really late in the game. On the plus side, you get two episodes pretty close to each other, as Tokyo Drifter is coming soon for July. That said, enjoy the episode. Thanks. and welcome to another episode of Toho Yaro, Japanese Film Club podcast wherein we watch a movie and talk about it. I'm your host for this month's episode, Alex Kazanis, and with me as always we have Joey Weiser. Hey Alex. Hey Joey. And Scott Dryman. Hey everybody. And this month we are going to be discussing the film Lady Snowblood, directed by Toshia Fujita. So, Ladies No Blood uh, is a 1973 uh, film uh, based on a manga of the same name, directed by a Mr. Toshia Fujita, and starring the incomparable Meiko Kaji. And, uh, well, I think we might as well discuss uh, the history of this film. Uh, so, this is based off of a manga. Uh, I've not read it, uh, and <laughs> neither have you two. No. <laughs> no. So, but the, uh, uh, the writer, Kazuo Koike, is pretty well-known for Lone Wolf and Cub. So I haven't seen any of uh, Fujita's other movies, but I'm familiar with a lot of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Stray Cat Rock. Yeah. Uh, I think you sent me the soundtrack to that. Oh, did I? Yeah, I've, I've seen those. Those all star Meiko Kaji as well. Ah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And they're, yeah, they're definitely similarly highly stylized, I would say. Uh, he's definitely a guy who loves to... To mix it up visually. <laughs> that would make sense, yeah. Um, and uh, I think we covered this in the Tom Popo episode, but he shows up in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the guy with the toothache. That's right, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we did talk about it at that at length. Um, and uh, the lead actress, of course, Meiko Kaji. Uh, she's been in a ton of really good uh, really good series. Straight Cat Rock, of course. Um Female Convict Scorpion, uh, which uh, you've seen, Joey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Wandering Ginza Butterfly. Uh, she shows up in Battles Without Honor uh, and Humanity uh, in Hiroshima Deathmatch, that particular uh, film. Uh, and, uh, of course, Lady Snowblood, uh, which there, of there are there are two movies. Um, I haven't watched the second one yet, uh, so I can't tell you anything <laughs> about it, unfortunately. And... Uh, now, aside from being a uh, prolific actress, she's also a prolific singer as well, uh, having sung not only the theme song to the movie that we we're going to be discussing, but also uh, from the other films that she was in, uh, Wandering Kings of Butterfly, Female Comic Scorpion, and, uh, and Jean's Blues, mm-hmm. yeah, among many others, of course. A lot of you might be familiar with Meiko Kaji, uh, or at least her, her song uh, discography, or at least a few of them, uh, from the movie Kill Bill Volume One and Kill Bill Volume Two, uh, one of one of uh, one of which is actually the theme song of this movie, uh, Shoot on the Hana, uh, Flower of Carnage. Uh, also in the movie, uh, playing Dokai, uh, her sensei, 
is uh, Ko Nishimura, and he's been in a heap load of stuff, including two Zatoichi movies, uh, including Zatoichi and the Festival of Fire, which Joey mentioned in his uh, mini oh, episode. Yeah. I love that uh, one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, New Battles Without Honor and Humanity, uh, which uh, Meiko Kaji is also in. Uh, Yojimbo, and uh, the 1994 47 Ronin. This movie also features Eiji Okada, who plays uh, the the uh, quite evil Ishiro Tsukamoto in this film. And uh, he is also in another, uh, well, we mentioned Lone Wolf and Cub, and he is in one of those uh, live-action films, mm. as well as a few other uh, movies as well that uh, I, I haven't heard of, but uh, I mean, you might have. Crazy Fruit, Gate of Youth, Blue Christmas. I'm just naming off a whole bunch. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not super familiar with him, just like by sight or or by name. But and I've <laughs> most likely I've seen the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub movie that he's in. But I don't know, maybe he didn't have a goofy uh, goatee and glasses in that one. <laughs> yeah, his um his appearance in this one is pretty uh, pretty memorable. I'd say mm-hmm. uh, it. I mean, he's very. You can pick him out of a lineup. That's for, that's for damn sure. <laughs> This film is interesting because uh, I had only seen it up until um, pretty recently. I bought it last year because um, it was on sale, and I was kind of going through like this little Meiko Kaji kick. And boy, it's really similar to the movie Kill Bill, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where wherein like this is basically Kill Bill, but uh, I'd call it better pacing, <laughs> like. <laughs> Like a much better pace, uh, a lot of a lot of um, very similar shots, very similar imagery, um, and of course, you know, Meiko Kaji is basically the bride. Uh, the same, essentially, the same same story there, same genesis. I will say, as soon as I finished watching this, my first thought was, "Man, why couldn't Kill Bill be just an hour and a half long?" <laughs> I thought about that too, because there's parts of the first one I like a lot, and parts of Flame Two that I like a lot, but. Like as a whole, like you know, it's it's kind of a it's kind of hard to get through all all at once. Uh, that's just me, of course. Uh, not Lady Snowblood, obviously. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel like part one kind of pulls from it a bit more, and then part two, Tarantino kind of goes off in a different direction. Um, he does, there's, but yeah, that certain... end, the end of part one, where um, the the bride is facing off with. Um, Oren Ishii, Ishii. Yeah, yeah, is is very Lady Snowblood, and that's when uh, Shiro Nohana plays uh, within the film too, for sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, if you've if you saw if you've seen Kill Bill, then you've seen chunks of this movie. Um, but I do think that this film is is much better uh, <laughs> uh, as an all encompassing uh, like piece of work. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, before we get. Uh, you know, I will talk about the manga after we discuss the synopsis of the film. Um, do you guys? What's so? so what's your uh, the two of you? What's your um, relation to this movie? Have you seen it before, uh, history wise? Uh, this I hadn't. Uh, similarly, I had not seen it until it was recently uh, released on Criterion. Um, I'd heard of it. Um, I yeah, back to Kill Bill. I, I remember being really into those soundtracks back when uh those you know they were new and especially taken with the songs uh of kaji's um and i think that that was kind of like at a time where i hadn't seen a lot of old uh movies from this time period the japanese movies from this time period and 
but I think it did kind of like pull that sort of Enka sound kind of pulled uh, at, at me in my memory zone <laughs> from like watching Godzilla and Castle of Cagliostro and kind of movies like that that I had seen that meant a lot to me. Um, so, and then when I did finally see this movie, I had kind of been getting more and more into seeing classic Japanese film, and so I'd seen a lot more of these sort of historical movies set, you know, set at this time period from like Kurosawa movies to making my way through the Zatoichi series, uh, which are kind of two different ends of the spectrum. And, um, and so I wasn't sure what to expect. And it was, it's definitely closer to Zatoichi, um, in that, uh, in that meter, you know, but, um, it was more, definitely more stylized and kind of like flashy than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, this is the first time I had seen it. Uh, I was pretty familiar with it just like as a thing that was floating around in pop culture and had seen stills and a few clips, but I had never watched the entire movie before. So this is my first go at it. Cool. All right, cool. Well, uh, we'll get right into it. Uh, so this movie opens up, uh, with a subtitle in, uh, Kanagawa prefecture prison. It's in Tokyo. Uh, the year's Meiji seven. And a uh, a baby is born in this prison uh, during snowfall. Uh, you'll 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 note that most of most of the time that you see snowfall in this movie, it's very like uh, it's against a stark black background, mm. uh, which is I think very haunting um, and really uh, I don't know it's very uh, very powerful imagery, and it, I guess it evokes uh, a lot of you know of the black and white imagery of the manga as well uh, of just manga in general I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this baby is born during snowfall. Uh, her name is Yuki, which means snow, uh, incidentally. Uh, and uh, as the uh, as her mother, who is deathly ill, um, uh, names her, she also mentions uh, that uh, she says that you will live you live your life carrying out my vendetta. Uh, and it uh, turns out that this baby has been born in Ashura. Which is uh, a a Buddhist demigod uh, in, in in Buddhist lore, whose desires are never satiated. To uh, kind of expound on that and give some some uh, context for listeners, uh, Ashura the the type of demigods there are the lowest ranks are Ashura and Deva, which are vaguely analogous to kind of demons and angels in uh, Western religion. And Ashuras are driven by, like, negative emotions. So saying she's an Ashura is saying that she's just this, like, vessel for wrath and vengeance. Mm. Like, specifically, emotion. So then uh, we we kind of uh, fast forward a bit. Uh, so we have, uh, once again, um, the black sky with the white snow. Uh, this movie is simply gorgeous. Uh, we uh, We see a woman... Who draws her umbrella, which is uh, which is like a violet color. Uh, very, all the colors in this movie pop. Yeah, um, for sure. And uh, she stands in front of uh, a, a a group with a rickshaw uh, with a sign marked Senryo. Um She uh, she flips like she does a somersault with a really cool noise, which uh, we'll hear again and again. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Cuts off, cuts off a guy's arm, uh, blocks all the swords with her umbrella, like like she opens up her umbrella and they got caught in it, which is super awesome. 
um, and you know cuts all of them down and uh, there's paint blood everywhere and uh, you see that the uh, the scabbard of her sword is her umbrella and uh, she cuts down the last man to die uh, Shibayama that her name is uh, Lady Snowblood and uh, then we have the opening credits, uh, Shuda Nohana by Meiko Kaji herself. And it's very much like a, uh, like a montage of her like traveling and cutting stuff. Uh, kind of like an anime opening. Uh, <laughs> very, very much an anime opening. And the song is literally about, uh, you know, Lady Snowblood. Yeah. Uh, something I wanted to, to point out is that Lady Snowblood, the, the name of the film and the name of the character in Japanese is uh, Shura Yukihime, which is uh, uh, Ashura Snow Princess. But uh, Shura, with just Shura, not Ashura, means a uh, place of carnage. And the song sings about how uh, white snow can't wash away the, the evils of the world, that it has to be blood red snow. So calling back to, to her name. Mm-hmm. So, and it's also a, uh, a play on uh, the name Shiryuki Hime, which is the name for Snow White in Japan because it's White Snow Princess. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we've got a bit of a time dash uh, after, after, the, uh, after the opening song. And uh, Yuki is in a village looking for a man uh, named Matsuyaman. And... Uh, these uh, bandits say, oh, yeah, we'll take you to him. And um, they take her to a, a forest, a secluded forest. And and as they begin to uh, assault her, uh, Matsuyaman, like, comes out and says, you know, you guys stop. Don't you know who this is? This is, you know, this is Shuriki. You know, this is- yeah, and this is, like, a wild bunch of guys. And he is definitely, like, the roughest looking. He's, like, missing teeth. and <laughs> Yeah. He's got he a crutch like- that he's hopping around without using. Yeah, oh god, I love that. He's just and he's hopping around like a champ. He reminds me of um that one character in Ninja Scroll, like the the old man who's like just kind of following uh what's his face the entire time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. But he's yeah, he's he's extremely homey looking. Um so yeah, Matsuyaman is uh he's this uh he can track people down because uh, he's uh he's basically a mob boss. Uh he he leads this um underground uh cadre of of street beggars the re- and she's like well i killed this guy shibayama the guy from uh, earlier um, right before the scene and so she, you know uh, that so i did you this favor so now i want you to do me a favor uh so i need you to find find some uh, some people for me uh revenge revenge wise a uh, really funny line there is when when they're meeting he says something along the lines of that face looks like it couldn't hurt a fly, which was very funny to me because everything I've seen of Meiko Kaji is her making like the most terrifying murder faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's got the, the Meiko Kaji stare. It's very vicious. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very prevalent in this movie, too, at times. Uh, so then we have, a, we have a bit of a flashback um, back to uh, Yuki's past, uh, or, or rather... Um, so, a long time ago, 1873, um, which is uh, uh, roughly, it's roughly a year before um, Yuki was born, 
in prison. Uh, we were treated to this very happy, uh, happy scene in like a field where uh, a, a teacher and his wife and uh, and their son they're all wearing white. They're attacked by four criminals. Um, uh, these uh, these criminals are uh, are a woman, uh, Kitahama Okono, and um, Takemura Banzo, Shoke Tokuichi, and Tsukamoto Gishiro. Uh, they murder murder the man, murder the teacher. Uh, and his son, and they uh, very, very violently beat and rape uh, Sayo, uh, the woman. Uh, there's this, uh, and I noted that during this, during the part where uh, she is on the ground uh, and looking up, there, that's a shot that Tarantino borrows for uh, the opening of Kill Bill Volume Two. Uh, this worm's eye shot, looking up at these four, four villains. Uh, so, Tokuichi, um, one of the one of the four, uh, secretly uh, takes her, takes her uh, with him, uh, to work for him. Well, I mean, I should also say that uh, these four, these four villains, uh, have just swindled an entire town. Uh, they basically said, if you give us money, you guys won't be drafted into the into the army because you know there's an impending war. And uh, they all, the entire town, uh, town I think was called Koichi, right? Um, and they gave uh, they gave the four money, and then they just skipped town. Mm-hmm. And along the way, they meet uh, this teacher Sayo and their son, uh, and uh, Tokichi uh, takes takes Sayo with him, uh, and to work for him. And eventually, she kills him. And then is sent to prison for life. Uh, Where? Oh, please. I was going to say to go back. The reason that they kill the teacher is because they assume that he is a some kind of uh, guy coming to run the draft for the prefecture. So they kill him. So their their uh, uh, their uh, graft doesn't get found out when they try to draft the people who paid them. Oh, so. good. I, thank God I missed that. Like, yeah, I, I, I they kind of gloss over that. Yeah, that's the entire reason for the. I mean, it, he, he just says you're one of those draft man. guys, and then they kill him. Wearing so. white. Yeah. Yeah. So while she's in prison, uh, after the baby is born, which is apparently the most difficult birth that uh, that um, that the women inmates have ever seen, uh, who helped deliver the baby, uh, she um. She tells you know the impetus of of this birth, and uh, they. Uh, she also says you know you guys are probably wondering you know why I'm such a nymphomaniac because I hear you talk about me. I'm you know I'm, I'm the nympho in, in prison. Well, here's the reason why I wanted to have a kid, so that I wanted to have a boy. I wanted to have a boy so that th- that boy can carry out my revenge. Um, and I I don't have a boy, but I have this girl. And uh, regardless, you know she's. She's going to have a tough life. Uh, she's going to be this demon who carries out my my revenge. Shortly after that, Yuki uh, the uh, is taken to Dokai. Uh, he's a he's a priest uh, who ends up being her her sensei. He's a um, he's a strong uh, disciplinarian uh, and <laughs> goes uh, gives her these really weird training. Uh, training exercises where he puts her in a barrel and kicks her down, <laughs> kicks her yeah. down a hill, 
and I am I'm not really sure what the purpose of that was. It like you know it shoots her out, and I guess you know it's supposed to just teach her to be you know hard. Well, if she's I, if she's tough enough, she can hold onto the sides and not get thrown out. I think is sort of the idea, but that's also she's incurring all that sort of damage and stuff from being knocked around. So I think it's just sort of in general supposed to kind of toughen her up. Yeah. I know it's not supposed to be comedic, but that shot where she gets shot out of the barrel, I laughed out loud so hard. Yeah. No. Oh it's no, it's super funny. funny. <laughs> yeah. And I love you know, that. again bring it to Kill Bill, I think the training stuff in part two is supposed to be more of a sort of kung fu wuxia thing, but like it definitely makes me think of that uh, part as well. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. Uh, so the barrel training, there's tether training where she uh, is tethered to Dokai and he fights, uh, he duels her with swords. And uh, in one particular instance, she learns how to somersault with a cool noise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> eventually, uh, uh, they, um, the narrator... By the way, the, there is a narrator, and uh, this is like the last time we hear of him, really, um, if yeah. I remember correct. Uh, it, it, the narrator notes that born and raised as an Ashura, uh, you know, she did still hold compassion um, because she burned with the, you know, with uh, her, the spirit of her mother. And uh, 20 years later, uh, the, on the 20th anniversary of her mom's death, she decides to set out uh, to... Uh, take on these four, uh, uh, these four villains who uh, who killed her mother. And uh, the first one that she goes after is Bonzo Takimura. Uh, we uh, we see Bonzo is a um, an older man now, and he's got a daughter who's making bamboo wives. Uh, maybe you guys can enlighten me as to what bamboo wives are exactly. Uh, uh, sex dolls? No, bamboo wives are so when it gets hot in the summer, and uh, and it's it, these aren't a thing that were exclusive to Japan. There were similar things in other countries, where instead of cuddling your spouse, you would cuddle this wireframe of something, and that way you would get a breeze going around your arms and legs, so you didn't get hot and sweaty at night. Oh wow, that's <laughs> different than a sex doll. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty ingenious. Before you said, uh, you know, oh, yeah, it keeps their body cool. I was like, oh, so it's a bamboo love pillow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it had a practical purpose. Yeah. 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 Um, well, there we go. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so anyway, uh, Kobue is, um, is uh, Takamura's daughter. And uh, she's like, yeah, I'm going to go sell these bamboo wives. I'll see you later. And. She goes to a cliff and just chucks them off, uh, and turns out she sells herself for money. Uh, yeah, I, I love that shot of her throwing yeah, it's visually the, beautiful um, bamboo wives off the cliff because that's you know that's for real. They shoot it from far away, and it's this huge cliff with like a roaring ocean underneath, and it's really great looking. Yeah, uh, we'll get back to that cliff <laughs> in a little bit, um, but. Uh, Yuki runs into Kobue. Uh, Yuki, by the way, is wearing the coolest kimono I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's this like, um, this like blue striped, striped thing. Oh yeah. It's it. I don't know. I think it's I. I think it's cool as hell. I actually prefer uh, the butterfly one at the end, but everything she wears in this movie is amazing. 
Yeah, like <laughs> where does where does she get where does she get all the cool kimono? Uh, so uh, she um, she meets Koboy and uh, and and she and Koboy introduces herself as uh, Koboy Takamura and that gives her pause that gives Yuki pause um, and uh, ends up going to a gambling house and as the uh, as the traveling gambler uh, she is dealing. Um, She's she's the dealer of a uh, of a card game. Uh, I'm not really sure what card game this is. Perhaps you guys can let me. Uh, I tried to research because I was like, "This isn't Huncho. I don't know what this game is." But uh, no amount of looking around online it could elucidate me. So I don't know how it works. Gotcha. Yeah. This feels would- like a real like hell of like the t- the period that this was made and the sort of conventions. Like it feels like. Uh, there didn't really need to be a gambling scene in this movie, but like that's just the way you do it when you make uh, Jidai Geki, you know, and Yakuza <laughs> involved, you know, and especially in the seventies, the sort of like, um, you know, after years and years of Zatoichi uh, tearing it up and, and letting people know that that's you know, being being a popular property. Yeah, I was actually hoping that I would see a cameo. Uh, <laughs> Uh, at the gambling hall, like just in, kind of in there, but to no avail. Uh, so uh, Bonzo comes in, um, and he's so Bonzo at this point is an alcoholic. He's got a lot of debt, um, and that's basically the reason why Kobue is quote unquote selling bamboo wives. Um, it's in order to you know to keep her father afloat because his debt is is ex- is exorbitant. Um, he keeps pissing it away gambling. Uh, and how does he keep winning at gambling? Why? He cheats. Um, and Yuki notices this. She doesn't say anything. Uh, but he's caught by the pit, pit master. And, um, they're throwing knives at him, just kind of teasing him. Uh, kind of like, uh, kind of like a circus, throwing knives but not completely hitting, hitting the target. And, uh, just as he's about to be killed, Yuki bursts in and, uh, pleads with the, uh, with the owners to, to pardon him. After this, she runs into Kobwe, who I who had just finished um, a job, uh, so to speak, and offers her sanctuary. Like she says, you know, no matter what happens, uh, you know, come to this address in Tokyo. Uh, this is this is where you can find me. And she's like, oh well, thanks, but I think I'm good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Bonzo uh, recluses himself in a bar. Um, Yuki follows him and he thanks her and then she was like uh, yeah come with me by the way um, this is you know your last drink basically she I think this is a very cool bit she acts as the messenger of death uh, for him uh, and leads him to um, uh, leads him to I, I guess the uh, the bottom of the cliff there mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's the beach below the cliffs yeah there's, there's water, there's rocks, you know, using context clues here. He's begging on his knees not to, you know, not to, uh, not to kill him. And then she reveals who exactly she is. And he begs and pleads even further, but to no avail. Uh, she cuts him down. He uh, falls into the sea, which then runs red with his blood. Uh, I love when this happens in these movies, by the way, because I'm not... I'm not completely sure how this works, but I don't think that it would turn that red. Not from one person, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. 
But, you know, these are <laughs> these are 1970s, you know, samurai-esque films where, you know, uh, blood spray is, is kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, you I get got, that thick, thick paint. And... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying you get that thick paint. That's right. Yeah, this, the carbonated paint. You shook up a you shook up a carbonated paint bottle and opened <laughs> it up, and there it goes. All right. So uh, she then dumps off. Uh, this is an interesting thing. After after uh, we see him die, we then see her carry uh, Takamura's body up to the same cliff where Cowboy was earlier, and dumps his body just. Just as uh, Cowboy dumped off the bamboo wives, uh, and this uh, this scene is actually kind of funny to me because it's clearly a dummy that she's throwing off mm-hmm. the cliff, but it's it's still like oh wow that's that's kind of interesting, uh, uh, you know very uh, you know kind of a similar shot to um, yeah from earlier, and I like because it's a dummy they cut it right before it hits the water because I'm sure that looked real bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so shortly after, uh, we see Yuki in a graveyard, and um, she finds uh, Gishiro Tsukamoto's grave, and um, of course, you know she's she tracked down this guy uh, Tsukamoto, and uh, upon learning that this guy's died, she slashes his grave, um, and as she uh, as she walks out of the grave, she passes a man, who stops and looks at the grave and then follows her. Uh, this man is Ashio uh, Ashio Rude, uh, Ryude. <laughs> uh, he's a the stray dog reporter. Uh, Nuki tells him to scram, buzz off. Uh, Dokai um, tells uh, tells Ashio uh, Yuki's particular story, Lady Snowblood, and uh, persuades him to publish it. And as he's, uh, I love this. I, I wanted to point out that as he's writing. The story of Lady Snowblood. There's this really great like jazz, like '70s jazz track. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a. Uh, I thought this was very distinctive music for for this type of movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a. I've got a couple things to point out here. Um, you mentioned earlier that this is where or that the uh, the narrator disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is him because ah. he's actually telling the story earlier, and then now we see him hearing and publishing it. Um, I can't believe the, I didn't put that together. <laughs> the uh, the interest, like the illustrations that are shown in all the flashback scenes, are actually yep. from the manga, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I noted that. Um, I I had confirmed that after after looking into it, but uh, but yeah, I was I was fairly certain that those were pages lifted directly from the manga. And the uh, the last thing I wanted to note was once he sh- once the like. Uh, relentless reporter character showed up and I was like, this is very much a seventies movie because there's so many like seventies movies where it's the investigative journalist is all of a sudden the hero, I guess in American cinema, I guess because of Watergate seventies guy hair too. But as (laughs) sideburns immediately after thinking that was when that super like jazzy music showed up and I was like, Oh man, this is so seventies. It was so good. (laughs) So, uh, so she goes. Uh, she goes to report to Matsuiman and um, the rest, and um, is you know pretty livid that that Gishido had died, and they they notice um, given the uh, the gravestone, that 
he had died in a shipwreck uh, three years ago, which was just when Yuki had started her search. So yeah, Dokai uh, persuades uh, Ashio to uh, publish the story, and uh, this is on purpose to draw out uh, Okono, uh, the the last one, the last one alive. If uh, you know, if if this story, uh, if this story is. Uh, is really that wild, then it will eventually reach Okono's ears and it will draw her out. So, it, it basically bait. Kobue. Kobue comes and sees Ryure and, uh, and finds out who, um, who Yuki is because she had taken uh, Yuki up on her offer uh, after, uh, after the death of her father. Uh, came to Tokyo and found out that this was the woman who killed uh, this is the woman who killed her father, um, thanks to reading Ashio's story. Uh, in the meantime, Rei Rei is apprehended by uh, by the cops because the story is too realistic and it's getting people nervous and 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 uh, heating up their blood. Uh, turns out these aren't really cops. I mean, they're cops, but they're working under uh, under Okuno herself. Uh, she's turns out she's been busy since um, since the uh, the draft dodging scam. Uh, at this point, uh, Kobue goes to tell, uh, Yuki, uh, that Ryurei got arrested. Um, she leaves a message. Uh, they beat the shit out of him. Um, they beat the shit out of him so bad that, uh, that he starts getting, um, really terrible, uh, bruises. And by terrible, I mean, like, really terrible makeup. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just, like, like, really giant paint. open sores. Yeah, it's, it's not very good. Um, but yeah, they beat the, they beat the ever-loving crap out of him. And, uh, and they torture him asking where, where Yuki is, but he says nothing. And eventually, uh, Yuki shows up and, uh, she does this really cool thing with her umbrella where she just kind of chucks it and uses it as a diversion mm-hmm. and cuts down everyone. And they, while they're freaking out, you know, they, they, uh, they mention, oh, you know, Yuki is here. Uh, uh, yeah, also, by the way, Yuki's wearing a really cool outfit in this scene, too, as well. Uh, <laughs> um, I didn't mention this before, but, uh, there's this really, uh, in the, in her training sequence, there's a scene where, uh, Dokai cuts her on her shoulder and then she licks the blood. Uh, there's a similar shoulder cut during this scene, uh, to mirror that, which I thought was interesting. Um, she uh, ends up confronting uh, Okono, uh, who tries shooting at her, um, but then ends up uh, cutting Okono and uh, using a sand bomb, uh, manages to uh, thwart all the other uh, all the other cops. Okono flees with help from the cops. Um, so uh, with. Uh, with a wounded uh, Ashio by her side, uh, Yuki eventually finds Okono through, um, after searching this this estate, uh, she finds Okono hanging uh, from the ceiling by her neck. And uh, Yuki bisects her corpse. Well, not quite dead yet. Uh, Okono is still able to look and breathe. Uh, I think this is just as she's about to, about to die. Uh, Yuki gets the last word and bisects her in half, uh, which is an incredibly violent scene. Uh, 
Like, yeah, it's just, just in a, case uh, she was going to try to fake being hung and then get away. <laughs> That's not <laughs> happening. Yeah. Yeah. So after that happens, uh, a kabuki curtain falls, which is yeah. an interesting segue. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, super cool. Um it's an interesting and, choice, but it was a little jarring to me since nothing else in the film has been framed quite that way yet. Right. What I um, think it's supposed to signify is that, like, it's supposed to, it, it's supposed to be the end of, you know, the end of her journey, uh, technically, but, you know, for the for the viewer, like, you know, oh, maybe I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah, the the screenwriter. There's a pretty cool interview with the screenwriter on the Criterion DVD, and, and he he notes that he he did a lot of kind of unconventional and experimental things with the script that the director then kind of chose to use or not use. And one of the things he pointed out was that it was actually very unusual for a movie to be split up into chapters and to have the actual chapter titles um, appear on screen. Uh, the way they do in this, and so I think that that's kind of an extension of of that. Okay, and it maybe would have stood out more if we weren't more used to seeing um, kind of chapter titles and things like that appear on screen. Yeah, because that's a, a pretty common convention for watching film as a modern viewer. But I guess if that was something super unusual, then then the the uh, the Kabuki curtain would have been less jarring as something else weird, mm-hmm. and sort of splitting it up scene to scene like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting the way you uh, you mentioned that too. The chapters because right after that, uh, right after the curtain falls, um, Riray uh, prepares to write the fourth chapter of Lady Snowblood. Um, but as he is uh, about to, um, a man appears uh, from a rickshaw. A man wearing a black hat, dark sunglasses, and sporting a super cool beard. Uh, <laughs> turns out it's uh, Gishiro Tsukamoto. Um, he faked his own death. Surprise, surprise. And uh, it turns out that he is Rirei's father. Um, he's done pretty well since since 1873. Uh, since then, he's become a big-time arms dealer, like a big black market arms dealer. Um he intends to ride uh, the change that the uh, whatever uh, outcome the war shall pose and capitalize on it. Uh, and he tells Rire, uh, you know, stop what you're doing. Trust me, you know, you're not going to want to, you're not going to want to follow the paper trail on this. Like, this is, I just came to tell you to stop. That's it. Um, and there's a, uh, there's this really, uh, powerful and really unsettling montage here. Uh, the thing in proximity to that is uh, when, after he leaves and then Yuki shows up, um, Rirei explains to Yuki what's going on and then they just exchange stares for a little while while it flashes back thinking about all of the horrible things that happened to her mom and all the violence she's done thus far. Yeah, that that was weird. Uh, it kind of reminded, well... Not to the extent, of course, of House, but it reminded me somewhat of House just because of all the quick cuts. Mm. Uh, it, it was like it was it was kind of a heavy heavy thing to watch. Uh, I mean, we've seen all these things before, but it, it's it it was a nice scene because it, you really got to uh, you see all this vengeance flooding back into Yuki. Um, 
Yeah, it does a really great job of kind of illustrating the because she looks so like stern and cold, but vengeance is usually like a seething kind of bubbling thing. And even mm-hmm. though exterior wise, she's very even, it kind of illustrated that she is like, like bubbling underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, uh, Rhea Ray escorts Yuki to the pleasure palace where, um, where, uh, where, uh, Gishido is going to be, you know, meeting all these, uh, 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 people want to buy arms and stuff like that, like a big, uh, kind of like a, a reverie of sorts. Um, and as uh, he escorts her to uh, to the palace, it it's snowing. Uh, once again, we get this stark black background with with snowy white snow, um, as snow is, uh, and it's a masquerade ball, which is uh, hard for Yuki because how is she gonna know who this guy is? So she kind of goes to the masquerade ball, bides her time, eventually finds a hidden door, which I thought was really cool. Well, and, we should uh, note the like cool. Uh, you know, Batman and Robin mask she's wearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, well, everybody's kind of, like, uh, actually something I really should note about this scene is that it's very colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, which is a really great contrast to, you know, the out of doors in, in this particular sequence. Like, out of doors yeah. just black and white, very stark, and then we have uh, this really colorful sequence with, um, with you know, uh, people dancing, wearing colorful masks, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of yeah it's it's a it's a fun contrast. But then she yeah. eventually just kind of takes it off. She's kind of just like eh, screw this. <laughs> yeah, <it's... laughs> nobody knows who I am anyway. This is whatever. So she uh, she goes through this hidden door, and she's ambushed by um, by Gishiro, and cuts off both of his hands, and slices him dead. Uh, and that's and that's that. But wait, she pulls off his face. <laughs> Like, it's a very, everybody else is wearing, like, uh, you know, they're all wearing, like, eyes wide shut masks, but he's wearing, like, an actual, like, Mission Impossible. Holly- yeah, it's straight Mission up Mission Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> yeah, like, a full-on, full-on, like, mask. Uh, she pulls pulls it off, and it is not Gishiro uh, Tsukamoto. Not at all. Uh, so, <laughs> she takes more hidden passages um, back to the ballroom, and, uh, we see the uh, the real Gishiro, uh, Ashio, Ashio and, and Yuki uh, both find him, uh, and he's got a gun. He shoots Ashio, uh, and Ashio comes up to him, comes up to his father, grapples grapples with him, uh, and uh, prevents him from shooting Yuki. Uh, and she does a really cool like uh, like chandelier swing uh, type thing, where she's just jumping from balcony to balcony. And uh, she stabs her sword through Ashio and cuts Gishido. I, I don't know if she's just savoring the moment or what, but uh, Ryu Rei is holding uh, Gishiro up against the wall, uh, saying, like, go on, do it, repeatedly, as he gets shot multiple times, and she's just standing there watching, and, and then she, eventually she's like, okay, now it's time. Yeah, I, I would say at this point he's kind of being built up as a possible romantic interest, you know, and that they have a closeness, and so she it, it's hard for her to have to uh, stab him as well as uh, Big Boss Man. 
she's uh, i should also mention that like at this point like yuki is also kind of wounded from the fight with um with fake kishido uh who did successfully ambush her um and uh after after gishido gets stabbed um by by yuki like through uh through Rire, uh he um he then gets his throat sliced open by her and it's this really cool dramatic death where he falls into the party mm-hmm. um and like in front of everyone yeah that that scene is really fascinating because, well, first of all, I was very amused at the bus boy immediately under him. I was like, oh, no, it's going to fall on you. <laughs> but uh, watching that scene, it's actually Eiji Okada, like, falling off a balcony onto the ground below him. It's like, it's it's impressive that they shot that for real or what looked like for real. I don't oh, know wow. how they would do it because he, he falls down and then you see him, like, see his face as he's laying there on the ground and moving. So it's not, uh, doesn't look like a, a stunt shot or a dummy to me. So, yeah. Uh, and we did see a dummy earlier in the movie. So there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a big difference between that scene and this scene. All right. So Yuki is, Yuki is wounded. Her lifelong mission has ended. She walks outside in the snow and is faced by none other than another than Cowboy Takamura, who then runs up to her, stabs her with a knife, and runs away. Uh, and as soon as Yuki removes the knife, uh, like I, like that's the cue. Uh, Shira Nohana starts playing. Uh, uh, I think at this point, also as she was delivering the coup de gras to uh, Gishiro, she also took a shot in the abdomen there. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is so a, now she has uh, a shot and a knife wound on opposite sides of her abdomen. Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. They do zoom in on her on that wound, uh, bleeding the paint blood. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Shiro Nohana starts playing as soon as she removes the knife. Um, Yuki keeps walking, and she eventually falls into the snow. And then uh, the music stops once again as she picks up snow screams uh, and as as day breaks and the sun shines on Yuki she lifts up her head looks at the camera and the film ends um, and that's the end of Lady Snowblood yeah just a, a quick note about that final bit of her kind of screaming in the snow um, from that same sequence uh, from that same special feature of uh, interviewing the screenwriter uh, Norio Osada um, he mentioned another kind of unconventional thing that he did with the script is that the final word of the script is the word tears but it's as if it's spoken dialogue and he noted that Fujita the director didn't really like working with super um constrictive scripts so he knew that if he gave him like these sort of abstract notes uh that he would sort of enjoy working with them more and so he was like I was very curious to see what you know would he would do with that with just the word tears and we see instead we got this sort of like primal scream from kaji uh, pretty intense yeah like after all, all that time she actually lets gets to let emotion come out mm-hmm. now that she's done yeah and uh yeah it's really interesting that it, we it kind of fast forwards through the night and then we see the dawn and she kind of arises because she's a demon and they don't die that easy. 
and there is a Lady Snowblood too. So. Mm-hmm. It's true. Got to come back for the sequel. Uh, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about the differences between this movie and the manga, um, which are, are pretty different, actually. Uh, so first, uh, one thing to note, uh, the writer who um, who writes Yuki's story is uh, is is named uh, Miyanara-san. Um, and he's more of a father mentor than a love interest. Uh, and also her name in the manga is Oyuki, which isn't that much of a difference, I guess. Um, but O is probably, you know, the O probably signifying uh, royalty or some sort of thing. Uh, but the uh, yeah the order or the order that she kills um, she kills the villains is uh, is kind of backwards, hmm. uh, where she um like uh, the, uh, uh, Takamura is the last one who she kills, um, in a similar fashion too. Like he is still he still begs and pleads for his life, um, but he's like an old man with a young daughter supporting him still. But yeah, she kills him, uh, and saves his daughter from being sold as a prostitute and she just lies and said that he committed suicide and then uh, tosses her umbrella into the sea after uh, completing her mother's goal and that's like the end of it like it's it's basically cut and dry revenge story yeah it's Um, interesting because when in the movie when she first ran across the daughter I figured we were going to get a like mini arc of her feeling compassion and maybe like and once the gambling was introduced, I was like, I, w- I wonder if she is going to use her gambling winnings to buy out the daughter yeah. so she can have freedom. But yeah, uh, yeah it's just like he, she tells him that tells her that she can come to this address in Tokyo, but that's that's about all it is. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, that's those are the pri- those are the primary. Uh, I think that's like what I got from the primary differences between the manga and the anime. I mean, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm so used to saying. One piece I'm so used to saying. Much? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's been a while. Uh, yeah, I think uh, those are the main differences that I could gather between the uh, the film adaptation and the manga itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I thought that was I thought that was super interesting. Uh, if you want to read the manga, apparently Dark Horse published it, so there's that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> what'd y'all think of the movie? Uh, I really loved it. it like I like I said I'd seen stills and clips but uh I I didn't really realize the entire movie was that interestingly shot and just the color saturation and so many of the different scenes were uh really fascinating. Uh something else that struck me was she's got a light layer of white makeup on through the entire movie which uh gives her eyes this really interesting it's part of why her eyes pop out so much is because you can see this like ring of pink around them uh, yeah they almost look bloodshot yeah uh, because of that yeah yeah because of the makeup and just like it's everything in there is so visually striking so but uh but yeah also the a lot of the the fight scenes were really interesting and i uh, is just really fun yeah the movie's gorgeous um, you know, the plot is like pretty a simple revenge plot, you know, uh, but I kind of love ramping up the drama by having this desire for revenge that's like 
so intense that it passes <laughs> from a mother to a child who don't even really have any firsthand experience with each other. Uh, but it's just that strong. Um, yeah, it's it's really great. I'm I'm a big fan of Meiko Kaji and and her work during this time period in particular. So um, I, I'd say it's a little. This is a little classier uh, than the sort of down and dirty scorpion movies or the sort of like <laughs> trippy and kind of weirder and kind of nihilistic like stray cat rock movies. Um, this is, if I recall, like uh, I think Lady Snowblood was kind of the beginning of Kaji moving away from these uh, kinds of movies, the sort of extreme violence and exploitation type movies. Um, the scorpion movies for which she's like uh became very, very popular, uh, were very punishing kind of filming experiences where she's she's down in the muck and, and really like being pushed around and, and pretty pretty beat up for real <laughs> making those movies. And so I think she was kind of moving away from that with this kind of movie, which is a little less harsh. Um, and eventually she like moved away from starring roles altogether, kind of being more selective about the types of roles she took. Um, I've, it seems like in the more recent years, she's been just doing sort of supporting roles in like family dramas and things like that. But, um, but that said about this being kind of like a classier version of these exploitation movies, it still has the awesomely crazy blood splatter and things like that, that cemented as part of that tradition. And like, um, it, it's just a little more restrained, uh, in some parts. And, and so I think this is kind of an excellent place to start uh if you're interested in Meiko Kaji's work um because it's not completely uh, out there but it ha it gives you a little bit of that sort of nuts uh violence and stuff yeah I, I did really appreciate that it's got a a I wasn't sure what to get going in because I know like Quentin Tarantino likes this and it has a kind of reputation as being an exploitation film uh that said I still uh, was pretty shocked when it starts out with a woman telling her uh, baby that she is a demon of vengeance. And I was like, oh, I, well then, I guess we're off to the races. It uh, <laughs> kind of reminded me of the scene from uh, Lone Wolf and Cub where he's telling the baby to pick between the ball and the sword. Mm -hmm. Like, we, we just put a lot on babies in these movies. Her cousin um, Goike does, at least. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so... Uh, I was really pleased that there's like, there's the blood spray and everything, but uh, there is still a lot of like nudging towards prestige and the way the film shot and a lot of the, the kind of interesting subtle choices mm -hmm. in direction and stuff. So it wasn't just all like uh, exploitation style stuff, which I guess I need to watch uh, uh, Stray Cat Rock and Prisoner Scorpion to get that stuff. Yeah, you know, and Scorpion especially has a lot of really cool visual stuff. Speaking of, like, filling up uh, water with blood and stuff, there's a scene you should see where there's just an avalanche of, like, a tidal wave of blood coming, <laughs> filling a, mir uh, a river and stuff. And it's really cool oh, uh, in an abstract way. Uh, but uh, those are also pretty rough in, in, uh, in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah, I uh, one thing I really noted about this movie more than anything was just, like, the like the photography was just simply gorgeous. Every okay. single shot in this movie is amazing. Like it's it's uh I never felt like this movie dragged at all because 
it was so interesting and pretty to look at. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot to love and you did mention how oversaturated a lot of the colors were and I really love that about it. Um yeah. Like it's it it really uh, it makes it makes all everything pop and uh the fact that you have all these stark black and white as well like interspersed uh it's a it's a really good uh yeah, really good contrast there. Yeah, it makes me curious, um, going back to the Tarantino thing, kind of like how uh, he first saw the movie, because unlike Lone Wolf and Cub or a lot of uh, early, like a lot of 70s, like uh, Japanese and, and Asian cinema, I don't think this has an English dub, and I don't think it was playing in uh, theaters. Um, so I could definitely see maybe this passing around bootleg circuits and him maybe even seeing it untranslated and being just like wow this is visually amazing without even really uh having to understand everything that's being said yeah he's talked a lot like when about the grindhouse cinema stuff and uh, i guess like you would just end up with a can of a uh, a japanese film with no subtitles Mm. and just watch that so that's probably how he was exposed to it okay yeah that, that would make sense uh all right, well, let's see. We covered the theme song, actually, already uh, earlier on in the episode. Um, the score is interesting. I was looking up... Um, so, Masaki Hirao, uh, the guy who did the score for the movie, I actually wondered uh, initially if this was done by um, by uh, Shinsuke Kikuchi. Uh, it sounded very similar, but then again, you know, this was made in the 70s, so, um, you know, a lot of that stuff kind of sounds samey. But I then, I then remembered that... Uh, Kikuchi did the score for um for Scorpion. Yeah, for the first one at least. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um and he also I think wrote or at least wrote the the uh, the music for um for Mako's uh, song in that movie Urami Bushi. Uh, yeah, Kikuchi was a toy guy. I think this was a Toho uh film. Yeah, this is Toho. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I I uh, I didn't realize that you know that uh. Composers would stick to, uh, stick to uh, studios. Yeah, I think well. Japan had a pretty like strong. I think there were freelance people that bounced back and forth, but I think they had a pretty strong studio system with uh, actors, directors, and everyone involved. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so, did you guys have a favorite like part, uh, part or a shot or like, in the movie? You know, like sometimes I like to do these sort of vague or abstract ideas as my favorite part rather than like an actual scene. And <laughs> I think for this, I'm going to go vaguest and abstractest yet. <laughs> uh, my, <laughs> my favorite thing is just kind of the general overall style. Like, and I know that's kind of a cop out, but like I was talking about this movie with uh, a friend of our show, Jason Pakman, who, who lives in Japan and is a big Torasan fan. And, um, and we were talking about this movie a little bit, and he had mentioned he hadn't seen it yet. And I was trying to think of a way to kind of like talk, tell him quickly, you know, Twitter uh, about it. Um, and what I said was that it was a great and stylish revenge movie. And I wanted, you know, because I wanted to let him know that the plot and pathos is fairly simple. Uh, you know, it's it's there's there's definitely something to it that's interesting, uh, but you're not going to get the nuance of you know like a better Yoji Yamada movie or something like that. But like the thing I really take away from it is that it's an extremely um, beautiful display of aesthetics, you know. 
Um, like we've been saying, the colors are gorgeous. We've been talking a lot about the whites, these big uh, pops of white and red, but the, there's purples too that really like shine. She has this like purple uh, outfit where she's got like a hood and shawl that covers her up. That's that's really uh, yeah, that's right. When and, she passes, uh, when she passes Gishido on mm-hmm. the street, it's like she. It's like in a lot of those scenes, it looks like she's glowing. You know, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, and I think that's just straight up color theory. You know, there there might be some <laughs> tampering with the film, but it's just kind of like in this like town of of wood and rock and sand. When you get a character that has this like bright bright royal purple, she suddenly like glows. You know, and 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 there's like. Um, I don't think we'd mentioned this, but like in the flashback to her dad being murdered, that like red of his, like the paint blood against his super white shirt uh, or suit, like also kind of glows in a way that's really crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, it looked to me like actually in that scene that there was a lot of overexposure, mm-hmm. especially, especially like in the suit. Uh, like there, I, I must have, they must have like done something in the post. Uh, to make but, yeah. it like really pop. So you know, just just the sort of like the way it looks and the way like we mentioned earlier that that the, had this sort of abstract screenplay that the director got to do interesting things with, like breaking it into chapters and 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 doing interesting things like that. And um and then this sort of intense performance by Kaji, you know, it's all all of these things come together and just makes it kind of like an overall experience uh, aesthetically that I love. Maybe you, Scott. Uh, I think the the part I'd like to highlight is that end scene uh, when she's after she pulls the knife out and is stumbling around. You get the music uh, cutting back in, and it's like, well, she's completed her her uh, journey of vengeance, and you expect it to her to just kind of fall and fade out with the song. Uh, but the I. Uh, first of all, I, she's. I, this seems like a silly thing to say, but I feel like she's really good at acting. The like stumbling around, mm. it looks really good and believable that she just refuses to stop, even though she's so so grievously wounded, mm-hmm. and uh, she falls, and then the music just stops abruptly, which kind of snaps you back into attention and to, instead of thinking the movie's just going to fade out or whatever. And then that primal scream she does is just like, so both fascinating and feels like a really big catharsis. Uh, yeah. More so I think than, than her actually killing the last guy. And, uh, and then once she, uh, fully collapses into the snow, it does this pull out into an overhead shot. And uh, I, when I say this, I mean it in a very positive way. It looks like a stage set, which I don't know if that was intentional or not, or just an effect of it probably being one and everything around it being kind of black void because of the way they shot those outdoor shots. Mm-hmm. But uh, kind of harken back to the, to the, uh, Kabuki curtain to me the fact that this is this looks like it's something you would see in a in a stage production and the very intentional like placement of everything and the way the shot is framed was just super fascinating to me and a a really fun way to cap off the movie and uh, and then you get her waking back up with the dawn because she's not done 
That's right. <laughs> with a Don. Don. Uh, it's really hard for me to pinpoint like a scene that I like the most. Uh, I did mention that I really loved most of what she wore in the movie because it really, it really makes her stand out. Uh, like I said, there's this striped, you know, kind of indigo and white number she's wearing. Uh, it's kimono when she was uh, taking down Takemura. Uh, I thought that was super cool looking. Uh, but I think uh, my favorite part of the movie is where um, where she's storming Okono's estate, uh, where she throws her umbrella and and there and she's cutting on these guys and the one guy who reports back to her is just like there's a look of terror on his face <laughs> and it's it's uh it's cool to see because uh whenever you see her cut people down in that movie it's just people who completely underestimated her and then they die and this is a guy who ended up getting away uh and seeing all this carnage for himself uh i i thought that was a really uh well fun funny and also kind of uh powerful scene uh, in which you get to see exactly uh, the impact she's having on on people around her while she's cutting them down. Yeah, I think that's also the best fight choreography in the in in the movie. It just looks really interesting. The way it's shot is this kind of weird angle where you don't get to see much and is uh, intentionally confusing. But it's just got this really really interesting feel. Like it'll slow down and then all of a sudden it'll speed up and she'll chop somebody down and it just happens over and over and it's so cool. Um, there is something else I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit. Um, I tweeted earlier, uh, and this is after rewatching again last night that, uh, the character of, uh, Gishiro Tsukamoto is, um, might be, uh, part, partially the inspiration for the one piece villain, uh, Don Quixote do Flamingo. And, uh, mm. I, ac- I actually took, uh, photos of of this entire of his entire spiel, like because he has when he when Gishiro shows up and um, for the first time to talk to uh, Ryure, he has this villain speech that kind of like uh, not really a villain speech, but he kind of like just puts down on the line, "This is where I've been and what I'm doing and what kind of person I am," and it reminded me a lot of what uh, the, that particular character in One Piece uh, is all about and um, and just does so. Uh, uh, this is what he says. He says, I'm now mostly in the arms trade. Even the government can't buy arms without my involvement. Japan's about to plunge into war. You hear the slogans. Rich country, strong army, grow the military. I'm playing a role in expanding the empire. I have no time for some stupid 20-year-old tale of revenge. I spend most days at the uh, Dokumeikan, where supposedly proposals are advanced to revise our unequal treaties with the West. Dokumeikan. Symbol of Meiji-era westernization and European thought. What really goes on there is nothing but nightly parties for the elite who indulge their desires and lust for pleasure. But all around them, society is changing. And I intend to ride the waves of change, seizing ever more money and power. Justice, conscience, and rebellion are all well and good. But in the end, they're just words here in this filthy hole. Uh, I, uh... I kind of thought that was uh, that was interesting, just because uh, in One Piece, Doflamingo is basically the major arms dealer in the black market, mm-hmm. and and he always speaks of uh, the tides of change, and uh, you know, and and how that's going to determine the future and stuff like that, and how he is basically 
uh, all of that is kind of a result of uh, of his doing. Uh, you know, him giving giving weapons to countries or him taking away weapons. You know, it's I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think the the war profiteer is a pretty uh, a moderately common character trope, but the the fact that uh, that he seems to have a similar kind of swagger about him and the fact that we know that uh, there are so many other references to this era of cinema that I think it's totally plausible. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I, I will say uh, a thing kind of against and then, and then end it with a four <laughs> in this column. Um, <laughs> in talking with Jason uh, about this, Jason Pacman, um, he looked it up and, 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 um, and, Lady Snowblood is not actually even available on Blu-ray in Japan. And I think that this movie is actually one that has a little, is pop- possibly more popular in America than it is in Japan. So it's not one that has a, a super great cultural uh, impact. But that being said, uh, H.R. Oda, who uh, is the author of One Piece, is a huge film buff and especially loves this era of cinema and um, also this sort of time period uh, for storytelling and stuff too. So I could definitely see him um, being familiar with this movie and being kind of like, yeah, this is an interesting type of guy that I want to mold a character after. Yeah, I guess, well, because it's me, I always have one piece on the brain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I also thought to myself, oh, well, he's also using decoys as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the character of Rebecca, although in the in the in in the uh, series one piece is, uh, I don't think handled very well. But uh, the entire reason that her character does anything she does in that manga is to uh, is to defeat Doflamingo and or get revenge. revenge, kind of family related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Um, I mean, it could yeah. just be me reading into it a lot, but that's, that's, yeah. Well, I also think this touches upon um, uh, a, a theme that also is in this movie about kind of, there's a little bit of stuff about kind of the westernization and modernization of Japan uh, kind of running through this. And it seems that um, Yuki kind of represents an older Japan a little bit and, um these guys are kind of like profiteering, yeah, against uh, on the sort of modernization of Japan. She's fighting against it a little bit, and you can see she's making these. Um, she's killing who she's meant to kill, but um, kind of the way that she ends up, possibly, you know, uh, semi defeated in the end, also shows that like it's it's somewhat not a winning battle. It's uh, uh, kind of funny you mentioned that too, like how when she shows up to the uh, when she shows up to the mask ball, and there's a bunch of Westerners there, and she has the mask on, but then she eventually takes it off. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a well, it's it's almost like a <laughs> I can't, I'm not gonna you know say this is fact or anything, but it seems like an allegory for uh, you know traditional Japan trying to follow the Western uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know the Western example, but then. Being like, ah, oh, well, this isn't working. <laughs> uh, well, unless you guys have anything to add. Um, I think I'm good. Great. Well, uh, well, what do we have uh, in store for next month? 
Next month, we're going to be covering Tokyo Drifter from 1966. Uh, and this is actually a movie that I have not seen yet, uh, which is exciting. Um, it's directed by Seijun Suzuki, who's a beloved uh, or revered director who recently passed away in February this year. And uh, I'm ashamed to admit that I've been meaning to explore his work for a long time, but have not uh, seen... Uh, well, I've seen one of his films, but it's not really one of his sort of tentpole works. Uh, like this one is, Tokyo Drifter. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And from what I've seen, this looks uh, similar kind of to Lady Snowblood. It has a lot of kind of like bright popping colors and things like that. Um, it's the, It was released on Criterion, so it's it's available that way as well as streaming on uh, services like Filmstruck. So um, it's one that our listeners should be able to find fairly easily. Is uh, Joe Shishido in it? I don't think so i was kind of uh going when uh suzuki passed away i i decided that i definitely wanted my next um one to do i'd already kind of planned on doing uh truck yarrow in a few months after that but like um the, that for this one to be one of his and i was thinking about doing branded to kill which is um joshishido but uh if it's not uh, we've definitely got to get uh, a shishido movie in next year yeah okay all right well, that does it for this this month's episode. Uh, time for plugs, our favorite part of the podcast. Um, you can always find me, of course, on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, at all, at dude exclamation all one word. Uh, occasionally, I can be heard on the One Piece podcast, uh, very sparingly as of late, uh, due to um, just me being busy in life. And uh, I also wanted to uh, thank uh, our listeners uh for bearing with us uh in case you know episodes don't come out uh, <laughs> as early in the month as we would like um thank you very much for bearing with us uh this summer is going to be kind of hard because it's summertime and we all have varying weird schedules so uh, uh we will get the episodes out uh as quick as we can but uh please bear with us oh uh scott uh i am friska chat on twitter v-r-i-s-k-a-c-h-a-t um i don't have much else going on right now tune in to see me complaining about politics getting excited about video games and uh maybe talking about the new D campaign i'm running um but that's about it for me joey uh, and I can be followed on Twitter at Joey Weiser or joeyweiser.tumblr.com for information about um, what I'm up to. Tumblr's uh, all professional, so you can see stuff about my comics work. Um, I'm the author of Merman, the All Ages graphic novel series that is now complete. Uh, volumes 1 through 5 are available in hardcover and, and softcovers for some of them and, and more coming soon, and, and they're all out digitally as well, so please check those out. Um, and also uh, follow our podcast on Twitter, Toho Yaro, or like us on Facebook. And uh, that's the best place to keep up with us while, yeah, we've all got busy schedules. So uh, our, we're still going to uh, do our best to do a monthly show, but it might be kind of sporadically throughout. Uh, you know, one might be in the middle of the month, one might be at the end of the month. But um, uh, if you follow us on these social networks, uh, Twitter especially, you'll see a lot of uh, news about like um, what's going on with uh, Western releases of Japanese films and things like that, and um, and and on both Twitter and Facebook, you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. 
All right. Uh, uh, one more thing. Uh, anybody that happens to listen who lives in Atlanta, uh, the Midtown Art Cinema here, is all through the summer, is doing a screening of all of the Studio Ghibli films. So uh, be sure to go to the, the landmark Midtown Arts website and check out the dates, see if you want to go to any of those. Uh, I think most of them have both uh, subtitled and dubbed showings. Far out. I like that a lot. Cool. All right. Well, uh, that does it completely for this week, month's episode. This month's episode of Toho Yero. Mm -hmm. Tune in next uh, month for Tokyo Drifter. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>